If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Here ends this reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for our interpretation. It is the beginning of Holy Week, which is the most sacred time in the church calendar. And I want to begin with a confession. Over all these years, I've handed out more than my share of palm branches to children on Palm Sunday and then told them to wave them above their heads and shout, Hosanna, which, kids being kids, was an easy request. And then I prayed as they headed down the center aisle to Sunday school that no one would poke anyone's eye out. But my confession goes deeper than concern for safety in the sanctuary. I often felt not so vaguely that I was participating in something that lacked a bit of intellectual honesty. The kids loved it, of course, and explaining that the palm branches were all that the poor would have been able to get their hands on to wave over their heads and toast Jesus, show their loyalty to him, and to have something like a parade as he entered Jerusalem for the last time, 
all of that's good, but I did not tell the kids the whole truth, namely that this is really a funeral march, that the church has turned into something it calls a triumphal entry, complete with a smiling politico Jesus that appears in bulletin cover art, at least, to be arriving on the first century version of a red carpet. Now, I would try to slip into the children's sermon some candor by saying, you know, kids, Jesus was entering Jerusalem for the last time and just sort of hoped they figured it out. But I did not tell them that Jesus was on his way to the most brutal and public form of capital punishment practiced by the Roman Empire or that Jerusalem was known as the city that stones its own prophets and does not know even to this day the things that make for peace. I avoided saying this because I was afraid that one of them might ask me the hardest question that you will ever get if you're clergy in the middle of a children's sermon. So why did they kill Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die? And before I put the same question to you, we need to look at the text closely to see what it means that on this particular Sunday, we enter this metaphorical gate that is Holy Week with this particular story, the humble beast, the shouting crowds, the branches, the coats and cloaks spread out like a pauper's yellow brick road. Did you know that this story is in all four gospels? Now you're thinking, okay, that's interesting. That's, no, that's a big deal. How big a deal is it? Well, consider this, Christmas didn't make it into all four gospels. Only half of them mentioned the mysteriously pregnant Mary, no room in the inn, shepherds watching their flocks by night, angels, that star like the ancient GPS, wise men who did ask for directions and the babe in the manger. Christmas only makes the cut in two of the four gospels. The Lord's Prayer does not make it into all four gospels. The most famous prayer in the world, recited over and over for two millennia, is in only two of the four Gospels. How about the two most famous parables in the world, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son? You guessed it, they do not appear in all four Gospels. In fact, they appear in only one. They are unique to Luke's Gospel. The Beatitudes. You know the ones in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, the poor, the pure in heart. They only make the cut in two Gospels. But this Palm Sunday story of entering Jerusalem for the last time ranks right up there with the baptism of Jesus by John. It is in all four Gospels this very strange spectacle we call Palm Sunday, which led at least one noted preacher to wonder if perhaps Palm Sunday should be considered the real birthday of the church rather than Pentecost. Her argument 
is that this is the day that the followers of Jesus came out, if you will, stepped up, sort of found their voice, became protagonists in the drama that is the reign of God. But even so, I would hardly call it a triumphal entry. A parody of imperial power, yes. A lampoon of Caesar's vision of strength, yes. The unparade, when compared to Rome's legions, you know, helmeted, armor gleaming, row upon row of noble steeds, all sent to keep order in Jerusalem when the Passover crowds would swell the size of the city. Yes, 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 yes. But a triumphal entry? That can only be understood as tongue-in-cheek. But one thing is certain. During Passover, Rome got very nervous. Nervous, because big crowds make empires nervous. Every strange character would come out of the woodwork. Every misfit, every would-be prophet, every revolutionary who knew that this was the best day to make a scene because every crowded street was like an instant audience. The city was packed and there was a festival-like atmosphere and religious fervor ran high and the Roman authorities, they'd heard about Jesus of course, I believe some Roman bureaucrat was keeping a Jesus file. The empire had its version of crowd control and its list of misfits, and so they just showed up and sat on their horses and watched everybody, and it did the trick. But who would have imagined that this healer and prophet would then enter the city on a scrawny little donkey with his legs dangling to the ground and his poor, pathetic, we've got nothing to lose crowd trailing after him, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. Until now, these people, these followers, had mostly been only interested observers because, well, Jesus was the latest thing happening in town. And people were talking. And they'd watched him, fascinated as he argued with civil and religious officials. The nerve of that guy. Defended prostitutes. Can, can you believe it? Talked with a Samaritan woman. That, that's just not done. Defy Sabbath laws. Huh, no respect for authority, the elders said. Heard him say strange things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In rhetoric, we call this a mnemonic device. Whisper among themselves when Jesus kissed lepers and healed those with broken bodies. Does he not know about the purity laws? He was a strange one, that Jesus. But through it all, they had never acted together as a group. Jesus had drawn big crowds, but he could not really claim his own crowd, what in politics today we call an army. There was no Jesus army until this day came, and it was time to make a statement about what this all really means. So they get together and they join in this very strange, very countercultural parade and shout, 
Hosanna, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at that moment, they become actors and not just observers. They can be identified now by Rome as belonging to a movement, not just being curious about the latest prophet. I mean, they had no floats in this parade. You've been to parades. There's standard stuff. There's usually a beauty queen. There's high school marching bands, but not here. No dignitaries, no one to throw out candy to the crowds, no beads. Instead, the Jesus people just staged a moment of kind of pathetic street drama, announcing that their hearts, their allegiance, and their loyalty belong to Jesus and not to Caesar. Right there on the street with the Roman soldiers, watching over them, they declared that the Roman recipe of peace through military victory is not what God means by peace. We just lose the power and danger of that moment. Yesterday on the campus of the University of South Carolina, where I had been invited to lecture and then sit on a panel to discuss religion and politics, the panelists got into a heated debate over whether Jesus of Nazareth was a pacifist. I argued that he was, and I was all by myself. <laughs> I said, I think he was, even if most of us are not. And the other panelists who represented the Roman Catholic and evangelical perspectives all issued stern warnings about how dangerous pacifism is, how fundamentally insane. I wondered then aloud if the true insanity might not be endless war. And our military used so often as a corporate police force around the world. When an expert on just war theory spoke about this rationale of Augustine's, you know, war but with rules, and he explained one of its most important principles that force must be used by any nation only in proportion to the threat posed by the enemy to avoid civilian casualties, I wondered aloud if anyone applies that standard to Israel today. We had a moment of tension. <laughs> Tomorrow is Palm Sunday, I would say to them as we talked yesterday, and it's a radical vision and we're gonna wave palms and shout Hosanna and they all said, yes, it's wonderful. So where would any of us have been standing on the streets of Jerusalem long ago? With the law and order of Rome or with the crazy vision of a man riding into town on a donkey? Really, where would we have been standing? I mean, Rome had a recipe for peace. And it's the same recipe we have in America, the Pax Americana. Peace is really the space between wars the interludes between unending episodes of violence, even as every violent episode sows the seeds for future retaliation, for vengeance, and guarantees the endless cycle of violence. Our own Pentagon 
still defines peace to this day as, quote, a state of permanent pre-hostility. As I walk through the airport in Columbia, South Carolina, there's a, where the university is located, there's a big banner that greets everyone as they head to baggage claim. It says, Columbia is the most military-friendly city in America. I wondered how it would treat a conscientious objector. Well, back to Jerusalem and the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus, it is important to remember that something very different, very dramatic, and very dangerous had just happened there. The followers of Jesus became a collective force. They stepped out on the stage of history and they shouted their loyalty, not to Rome and peace through military victory, but to Jesus and his God of compassion and distributive justice. They did this as a crowd, not to overmake this point, but they did it together, not as individual crazy people. Empires really don't mind strange teachers having strange students, but they don't like organizers having actual organizations. Because when the dissent is organized, it is a much greater threat, and then they call it sedition. Just like today, as long as people in little churches talk about the needs of the individual, the single human heart, the healing of one body, the reserving of one parking spot for one soul in heaven, thank you, Jesus, but never to organize our collective power to make fundamental social change, then you see, empires are all for organized religion. It leaves the actual running of the world to people who have the hardware for it. In short, nobody loves privatized religion like the principalities and the powers. Let your individual complaints be shouted from the rooftops, but don't organize yourself into a union. Engage in your personal spiritual practice, but do not engage in community organizing. Pray as independent contractors for righteousness, but do not invoke the power of the many against the powerful few, or you will make the powerful few very nervous. Which is exactly why Palm Sunday marks a turning point in the Jesus movement. It was the first time that his followers displayed not just curiosity or even admiration, but solidarity. If I, if I may borrow the familiar phrase from the gay rights movement, this is the day the emerging church came out of the closet. This is the day that the church distances itself from the state and from all worldly power. This is the day that we say by the waving of palm branches that we are renouncing any and all allegiance to every earthly prince, potentate, party, and vainglorious platform that promises to save the world. As Lori reminds us, the title of Messiah is already taken. It is for this reason that one can argue that Palm Sunday is the birthday of the church, not Pentecost. 
And for this reason, I think that if we're going to ask our children to wave palm branches, maybe we should all be waving palm branches one way or another without poking anyone in the eye. Except the empire, of course, it needs a poke in the eye. The two-state solution is dead, if it was ever really alive. The Golan Heights belongs to Israel, and soon the Gaza and the West Bank will be annexed because the newly indicted and then newly elected leader of Israel said that any land taken in a defensive war can be claimed by the defender, which means, strictly speaking, that after World War II, all of Europe really belongs to us. Our emperor says that he alone is the one in charge of immigration policy and the press is the enemy of the people. We are all being asked to move on, let's move on from this 400-page report on Russian interference with our election that nobody's read. Except for one man our emperor appointed to reach the right conclusion for him and for all the rest of us. We are building new pipelines. We're letting Boeing inspect and certify its own airplanes. And our drug cartels are making sure everyone gets all the opioids they need. The Pharisees told the Jesus people, why don't you tone it down? Now, I don't think necessarily this meant that the Pharisees were being bad people, bad actors. Maybe they were trying to save the lives of the Jesus people. Hey, just, can you just cool it a little bit? Take it down a notch? People, there are Roman soldiers watching. For quality assurance purposes, this pathetic little parade is being recorded. Well, I don't think it's a very good moment to tone things down, do you? Because if we don't speak and act now, God will put the message into someone else's throat, and even the rocks will begin to shout, Hosanna. And that sounds like such a harmless word to me, Hosanna. Sounds like such a, a churchy word, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, no one ever told me it was subversive. But by saying Hosanna, we declare our loyalty. By shouting it, we commit to organizing our loyalty. So maybe we should all wave palm branches and shout. Maybe the kids will one day pass out the palms to us because it's their future we hold in our hands. And all of us have got to decide which side we're on. Why don't we all say Hosanna? Now why don't we shout Hosanna? Hosanna. That's a poke in the eye. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. 
Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.